Now, I'm not judging these people's actions. It's their money. They can do whatever they want with it. But please, let's not profile these folks as investors. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. In this episode, I'm joined by Larry Swedro, who for years has been one of my favorite writers on both investing and financial planning. His latest book, co-authored with Kevin Grogan, is called Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. And in our interview, we focus on how your investing challenges evolve once you're in retirement or a few years away. Now, Larry's framework for discussing asset allocation is a useful one, and I often adopt it in discussions with clients. He encourages investors to consider their ability, willingness, and need to take risk. Your ability to take risk in your portfolio depends on your time horizon. The longer your time horizon, the better your ability to ride out volatility and the reliability of your income. So, for example, a doctor, professor, or public servant can usually afford to take more investment risk than an entrepreneur or a commissioned salesperson with a variable income. Your willingness to take risk is largely about your temperament. Do you check your portfolio every day and stress about the fluctuations in value, or are you unfazed even in the midst of a severe bear market? And finally, your need to take risk depends on the rate of return that you require to meet your financial goals. So if you've saved a large nest egg by the time you retire, you might be able to live comfortably off your portfolio's cash flow, even if your average return is only 2 or 3%. But if you're in the accumulation stage, your financial plan might reveal that you need to target 5% or 6% to reach your goals. Now, as you can imagine, all three of these factors can change over time, especially as you approach retirement. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast, Larry Swedro. Larry, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thanks. So um, I wanted to begin by uh, introducing a little bit about uh, the new book, which is called Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. Now, many of your previous books focused on investing specifically, but one of the things I've always liked about them is that you've got a way of discussing investing in a larger context, right, of a financial plan. And in this book, you start by discussing how your investing challenges change once you reach retirement. So can you introduce that idea a bit? Yeah, sure. One of the things uh, that we have to deal with and recognize uh, when we develop a plan, um, so many people only focus on the issue of their ability to take risk in terms of their investment horizon, if you will. and they ignore things like their ability to take risk uh, can be impacted by their labor capital. Uh, someone who has, a, say, a doctor is very stable income. Their equity is very, uh, in terms of their uh, labor capital, is very bond-like. It doesn't change much from year to year, and it's pretty secure and safe. Whereas somebody maybe who is a stockbroker or a mechanic, someone like that, their labor capital is very stock-like. It may jump up and down with the economy, uh, and they therefore should own more safe bonds uh, uh, because of the labor capital is that way. And obviously, as we begin our investment career, our labor capital is at its peak, meaning we have all these future earnings to address. Uh, and they can come in and we can save and invest that. 
uh, when as we approach retirement, it's getting close to zero. And when we enter retirement, it is zero. And that's going to change your ability to take risk, something people have to think about. And then they also need to think about their willingness to take risk when we have labor capital uh, to replace losses, maybe. Uh, we may have a greater willingness to take risk. When we know we don't have that labor capital, our stomachs can get a lot more nervous and cause us to panic and sell. I've never yet met a stomach that makes good investment decisions. So you have to become a bit more conservative when you lose that labor capital, I think. Uh, and finally, you really have to think about is, especially as you enter retirement, because you're going to have to now live off of your financial assets. You have to think about your need to take risk, uh, how much uh, income uh, or cash flow you need to generate from your portfolio. Uh, and the more you convert nice to haves or desires into needs, the greater risk you have to take in your portfolio because you need to generate higher returns. So you have to be very careful not to make that mistake, figure out what's really important in life, the things that you really get, get great value from and not to make, take too much risk. The last point I, I think is important is we tend to underestimate the need to provide cash flow for ourselves over very long periods. Today, the average 65-year-old couple, if you're healthy, the second to die life expectancy is around 25 years, which means half of the time, one of the two of you will be alive longer. So you really need to be planning, I think, for at least a 30-year horizon. And that's a very long time to have money last. Uh, especially given today's interest rates and stock valuation. Now, there's another sort of dynamic that goes on with um, retired investors, and you refer to it early in the book as well, and that is this tendency for retirees to begin obsessing about their portfolio results. So you put it in the book that uh, the time they used to spend at work is now spent watching CNBC and reading financial publications and browsing financial websites. So what is the usual result in your experience when investors spend so much time consuming financial media? Well, we actually uh, know what the result is based upon research. Uh, uh, one of the things I'm most proud of in all of my books, uh, the recommendations uh, and contained in them is not based on my opinions, but are based on academic research. And here we have a lot of great research from uh, the field of behavioral finance. And what we learn is the more attention we pay to stock prices, the more frequently we check the value of our portfolio, the worse our results are likely to be. And there is very good science and logic behind it. It's something related to what's called myopic loss aversion. Uh, loss aversion refers to the fact that we don't feel pain and joy in equal amounts from the same size gain or loss. So a $10,000 gain brings us about half of the joy of a $10,000 loss. And the bigger that amount gets, say you're at a million dollars gain versus a million dollar loss, you may feel 10 times the pain uh, of that. 
And here's the problem. While stocks tend to do well over the long term, and that means very long term, the shorter your horizon, the greater the odds that stocks will underperform the very safest investments, say Canadian government uh, treasury bonds. Uh, so uh, if you look at stocks on a daily basis, there's about a 50% chance you're going to see a loss. Uh, if you wait a month, it increases only slightly. However, if you look at it once a year, the odds of seeing a loss drop down to about 30%. And at 10 years, uh, it gets quite a bit uh, lower. So the less you're looking at your portfolio, the less pain you're going to receive. And if we could do some simple math, let's just assume a month is roughly 50-50. If you look every day for a month, you're going to receive not 30 points of pain. You're going to receive uh, half of that. So half the day, uh, half the time, the market will be down. So you get 60 points of pain. On the other hand, if the month is up, you only get 30 points of, of gain. You felt pain by checking it. You have a net pain deficit, if you will. And so the less frequently you check, the better you're likely to feel. And pain can only cause you to do one of two things. You can ignore it, which would be the best thing, or you can panic and sell, react. And that, unfortunately, is what most people tend to do. They tend to sell after periods of losses, and then they sell low. Uh, they tend to buy after periods of gains, buying high, not exactly a prescription for success. So one of the best things you can do is learn to turn off CNBC. Uh, don't check your portfolio values more than once a year. Uh, if you can't resist that, make it once a quarter. Now, one of the other challenges that investors who are approaching retirement face is that so many of them believe that they need to change their whole strategy and start focusing on yield. You know, they feel like because we're drawing down our portfolio now, we're attracted to dividend stocks and high yield bonds and REITs and these other sort of income oriented investments. So what is the danger of that yield focus? Well, the biggest danger uh, is that yield can cause you to chase risk. And so if we think back, say, 20 years ago, investors were able to earn five, six percent in very safe bonds. And so they tended to, once they were in retirement, have very healthy allocations to save bonds, dampening the risk of their overall portfolio. Uh, the great financial crisis led to an environment in the U.S. It was called ZERP or zero rate policy for the Federal Reserve. All instruments were yielding very low uh, uh, rates and therefore Lots of people who take this cash flow approach to their portfolio sell safe bonds, move into junk bonds, dividend paying stocks, REITs, MLPs, and other things. And that can be a huge mistake. It works fine if the risks don't show up, uh, but if we get a recession, uh, then you can see those instruments get hit badly. Uh, and people end up taking far more risks than they should. Uh, 
And of course, interest rates can rise. And what can happen now, for example, is lots of the money that was chasing dividend paying stocks and REITs and others, if we get back to a more normal interest rate environment, much of that cash flow could flow right out again, moving back to safe bonds, and those instruments can suffer. But more importantly, even than that issue, uh, the academic research and the common sense says that is a big mistake. And one of uh, chasing the yields, for example, there is absolutely no logic or evidence to support the idea of buying dividend paying stocks. What people fail to understand is every time a company pays a dividend, they are in effect forcing you to sell your some of your investment in that company. And it's no different than if they paid no dividend, you sold a certain number to create that self-dividend because the stock price drops by the amount of the dividend. It's simple logic. If a company reduces its assets by a dollar, the stock should be worth a dollar less. And over the long term, of course, that's exactly what happens. The problem, and I'm not familiar with Canadian laws, but the problem with the U.S. is compounded by when you receive a dividend, you're taxed on the full amount of the dividend. On the other hand, if I sold uh, a certain number of shares to create a self-dividend, I'm only taxed on the portion that's the gain. So I end up with a much more tax efficient way. And companies are actually recognizing they're much better off not paying a dividend and forcing people to pay taxes. They're better off buying their shares, pushing the stock price up uh, by that amount. And people can create a self-dividend if they want to. And that's a very um, common approach that that many advisors will use as a kind of total return approach, which is exactly as you describe. It's some combination of yield generated by the securities in the portfolio, but also from time to time selling some of those securities to create additional cash flow. But when you make that argument to people, and the one that you just made, for example, that you know there's there should be no difference between uh, companies that pay out a dollar in earnings or retain that dollar in keep the investment in the corporation. It's such a powerful behavioral thing to see those dividends coming in that even people who understand the logic behind it still push back and say they're more comfortable with the dividend paying stocks. Yeah, there is a psychological uh, factor in this. I've written about this is perform mental gymnastics to fool themselves. So for example, people who receive dividends in uh, a bear market, they're saying, well, I'm not selling stocks uh, in that environment. Well, that's nonsensical because, of course, the stock price just dropped by the amount of the dividend. The company is forcing you to reduce your investment in the same way. The only reason uh, I think people should focus on dividends if it helps them stay disciplined somehow mentally that, well, I'm not selling stock in a bear market uh, and avoid panic selling because I have these dividends. Uh, If it helps them psychologically and it's a crutch, you know, okay, but recognize you're paying a price in lost tax efficiency. That's number one. Uh, And number two, you're likely sitting with a much less diversified portfolio uh, because uh, today, over 60% of the stocks, don't, at least in the U.S., don't even pay dividends. Up a diversification benefit as well. 
All right. Now, we haven't talked a lot about portfolio design yet, but I think we need to get to that because you spent a couple of chapters in the book talking about this. Now, anyone who's familiar with your other work will know that you've long been an advocate of factor-based investing or sometimes called smart beta, which again, for listeners who might not be familiar with this jargon, it's an extension of traditional indexing that focuses more on uh, value stocks, small cap stocks, and sort of other segments of the market that have been shown to outperform over the very long term. So Larry, I wanted to ask you how strongly you feel about the need to target these factors in a retirement portfolio, because I would argue that in retirement, you know, you've got less time to wait for those premiums to show up. You've got less tolerance for volatility. You probably have a smaller equity allocation to begin with. And so it would seem that the benefits of these or the potential benefits of this strategy might be muted in retirement. So how would you respond to that? Yeah. uh, In fact, I would take exactly the opposite position. Uh, I think the closer you get to retirement, diversification becomes. uh, And here's why. Over any very long period, we could look at, say, 90 years of U.S. uh, stock market history and the dispersion of returns among different equity asset classes or factors, using that word, is actually fairly narrow. So the stock market got about 10 percent. Large growth stocks did a little bit worse than that. Uh, Small growth actually did even worse. Uh, but the gap is not large there. Large value stocks better got about 12 and small value stocks got about 13 and a half or so. So, I mean, three and a half percent a year over a very long period is a lot, uh, obviously, and t- because of the compounding. But the magnitude of the gap is not that large. However, over shorter periods, we can see dramatic differences of 20, 30, 40 percent, and even in a single year uh, of that. And so what I believe is the shorter your horizon, you don't want to run the risk that all of your assets are in one factor, which if you use a total market approach, then all of your money is invested in one factor called market beta, and it can do very poorly for a long period of time. I want to have more of my money in in what are called unique or idiosyncratic sources of risk and return. So here's kind of my thinking, Dan, on this. We believe, and the evidence certainly supports it, that markets are very highly efficient, if not perfectly so. That means it's very hard to win the active management game. And therefore, passive, low-cost investing uh, is the right strategy. So... If you believe that markets are highly efficient, then you should believe that all unique sources of risk or asset classes should have very similar risk-adjusted returns. That doesn't mean they all have the same return. So emerging market stocks, for example, we all would say are riskier than U.S. stocks. They have higher expected returns, but it's not a free lunch. But once we adjust for their risks and various forms of liquidity, uh, transactions costs, and volatility, all of them should have similar risk-adjusted returns. So small stocks should have the same risk-adjusted return as large, value the same as growth, et cetera. Well, if that's true, 
why would you want to put all of your eggs in one risk basket called market beta? And you could think of that maybe for a Canadian as Canadian large cap stocks or a index of Canadian stocks and not put your money in a broader basket of one globally diversified, but adding these other unique sources of risk, such as the benefit is if we do get the affected and these riskier assets provide higher returns, then that allows us to own less market beta risk in the first place. So for example, if you own US stocks, you've got 10% a year for the last 90 years, but if you own small values, you got to. Obviously, you needed to own less equity, which allowed you to own a lot more safe bonds. So uh, it's interesting because one of the challenges, I would think, of using that strategy in retirement uh, goes back to one of the things we talked about at the beginning of our discussion, which is that retirees may have a tendency to look at their portfolios more frequently, focus on short-term returns. And one of the dangers of deviating from any kind of market cap-weighted strategy is always what you've called tracking error regret. So in other words, a retiree's listening to the news and they hear the S&P 500 is up 10%, but they see that their U.S. equity allocation is up more or down a little bit more. And they're wondering how come my U.S. equities aren't performing like the broad market? And maybe you get into a little more frequent discussions about do we need to make changes in the portfolio? Or you have this general undercurrent of discontent. Is this something, it must be something that you deal with your clients all the time. And how do you reassure them? Yeah, it is absolutely a very important issue. And the way to address it is upfront before people invest. And the way uh, to think about it is this. Uh, well, I begin with that analogy that we talked about, about markets being efficient. Risky assets should have similar risk-adjusted returns. So logic says, why put all of your eggs in one risk basket? And people get that concept. But once you diversify logically, you have to accept the fact that your portfolio is going to perform differently than whatever that common benchmark you hear every day from your news, the S&P 500. So you have to say, I don't care what the market is doing because that wasn't the right strategy. A strategy has to be right before you implement it or, or it's wrong before you implement it whenever you don't have a clear crystal ball and I've yet to meet somebody who does. And the bottom line is diversification is the prudent, most uh, successful strategy, I believe. Uh, and therefore, you have to accept that there will be periods when you'll underperform a benchmark and there'll be periods when you'll outperform. And if your portfolio doesn't contain almost all the time some part of it that's performing poorly, you're likely not diversified well enough. We don't want everything going up at the same time because it means likely when bad things happen, they'll all collapse at the same time. All right, Larry, thanks very much. I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your insights. Yeah, my pleasure, Dan. Happy to come back anytime. It is time to visit the newsstand for another installment of Bad Investment Advice where we try to steer you away from dangerous ideas in the media. 
This time around I'm going to call out Toronto Life, and I do this reluctantly because it happens to be a magazine I enjoy a lot. It's one of the few Canadian magazines where you can still read first-rate journalism, and more importantly, I like the restaurant reviews. But a recent issue made it clear that you shouldn't look to this venerable journal for investment advice. The article I'm talking about is called Bitcoin or Bust, and it presents mini-profiles of six Torontonians who have dabbled in everyone's favorite cryptocurrency. Now, for the most part, this is a perfectly harmless article that features some interesting folks. One is Justin Trudeau's half-brother, who is now a lobbyist for the crypto industry, and another is a woman who's interested in how the technology might improve the lives of people in the Philippines, where she was born. And this much is all great stuff. The problem I have with this article, though, is that some of the other subjects are presented as investors, when what they're doing is downright reckless. One, for example, is a former day trader who now speculates in cryptocurrency. Quote, all you need is a Wi-Fi connection and a laptop, and you can literally make money from anywhere in the world, he says. Another person in the article says she, quote, bought $300 worth of Bitcoin as an experiment just to see if it would eventually appreciate enough to cover the rent on her $1,000 student apartment downtown, close quote. Well, her bet apparently paid off, and now, quote, she plans to divest once she has enough for a down payment on a house or an apartment. Finally, there's a guy described as a former high-risk derivatives trader on Wall Street who sold his condo for 35 bitcoins, which at the time was worth $445,000. Well, if he still owns those 35 bitcoins, they're worth less than half that today. Now, I'm not judging these people's actions. It's their money. They can do whatever they want with it. But please, let's not profile these folks as investors. We've got a guy day trading on his laptop, an activity that will almost certainly result in massive losses if he keeps it up. We've got a woman who first gambled with her rent money and is now saving for a down payment with a highly volatile asset that could easily go to zero. And we've got a gentleman who sold his home, probably his most valuable asset, for cryptocurrency and maybe the only human in the last decade to have actually lost money selling Toronto real estate. None of these activities bears any resemblance to investing. They're all rank speculation. If these folks were going to the casino and playing Let It Ride, they would probably have higher expected returns, but Toronto Life wouldn't be profiling them as investors. There's another problem with stories like this. Each profile of these Bitcoin enthusiasts is full of colorful anecdotes, but very short on specifics. We learn about a couple of successes, a couple of failures, but it's all very vague. I mean, who knows whether any of these folks actually made any money over the long term and how their returns might have compared with their friends and family members who opted for something incredibly boring like paying their mortgage or making contributions to their RSP. But this is the usual pattern for investing success stories. You never get a complete picture that would allow you to assess whether the investor actually achieved outsized returns, let alone understand the risk they took to get there. I remember a story in The Globe that profiled an investor who boasted of great returns that he had earned from seven stocks that formed the core of his portfolio. It was only at the end of the article did we learn that he also had a variety of other holdings that didn't do so well. Now, this is something of an important detail to bury in the story. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of mutual fund managers out there who would love to be able to report only their winners while ignoring their losers, how they'd beat their benchmark every year. 
Even when investors make an honest attempt to measure their performance, few of them do it correctly because the fact is it's not straightforward. If you've made contributions or withdrawals to your account during the period you're measuring, then you need portfolio management software or at least a good spreadsheet and the skill to use it. And that's why I simply don't believe anyone's self-reported returns, and you shouldn't either. So the lesson here is simple. Ignore all investing success stories in the popular media. In most cases, you're just getting anecdotes about people who took big risks and got lucky, or they're unreliable boasts from people who aren't telling you the whole story. The danger is that they may tempt you to stray from your discipline strategy, which will almost surely lead to better results in the long term. One of these days, I would like to read some success stories about people who saved regularly and invested with discipline in a low-cost, diversified portfolio of index ETFs instead of betting the rent money on cryptocurrencies. But I'm not holding my breath. It would be pretty dull journalism, I admit. So, Toronto Life, I will continue to read every issue, and I'll take you up on your restaurant and wine suggestions, but I'm hoping your readers will ignore your bad investment advice. And we're going to round out this episode with another installment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from listeners and readers. And joining me with this month's question, as always, is Amanda Diel. Our question this time comes from Julian, who writes, I've just discovered the couch potato strategy, and I'm interested in building my own ETF portfolio. The problem is, my accounts are with an advisor who has me in expensive mutual funds with deferred sales charges. I'm trying to decide whether I should bite the bullet and pay those DSCs, or whether I should wait until they expire before I transfer my assets. What do you recommend? Thanks, Amanda. And thank you, Julian, for bringing up an issue that faces many new converts to index investing. Let's begin with a review of deferred sales charges, or DSCs, which are one of the most reprehensible practices in the industry. A DSC is a penalty that you pay if you sell your mutual fund before a specified period, which is often as much as six or seven years. So say you purchase a mutual fund for $50,000. If you sell that fund within a year, you might be forced to pay a deferred sales charge of as much as 6%, or in this case, $3,000. Now that percentage declines over time. So if you sell after three years, you might pay a DSC of 3% or $1,500. And eventually the percentage shrinks to zero, and you can eventually sell the fund without penalty. Now, the reason the DSC exists is because mutual fund companies pay the advisor a hefty upfront commission when he or she sells these products to a client. In order to recoup that commission, the fund company has to collect management fees for several years, so the DSC effectively forces you to remain invested during that time. Not only does this practice put handcuffs on investors, it creates perverse incentives for advisors. They're motivated to sell you mutual funds at the beginning of your relationship because that's when they get paid, but then they have very little incentive to provide ongoing service since you can't fire them without facing an enormous penalty. Now, the DSC is an embarrassment to the industry, and regulators in Canada have made some efforts to ban them outright, but lobby groups are fighting tooth and nail to keep them. They argue that investors should have the choice to compensate their advisors with embedded commissions rather than paying a transparent fee, and some are even so disingenuous as to suggest that DSCs encourage investors to buy and hold. Now, this is all self-interested nonsense, and it's only a matter of time before advisors who rely on DSCs will be out of the business forever, to which I say good riddance to them. All right, now that I've gotten that off my chest, Julian, let's talk about some ways that you might be able to improve your situation. 
If you've got a portfolio full of DSC funds with an advisor and you want to transition to a self-directed account with ETFs, it's not going to happen overnight and it won't be free, but here's some advice for getting started. Your first step is to ask your advisor for a schedule of all the DSCs in your portfolio. He or she will be able to tell you what the cost would be if you liquidate the entire portfolio today, if you choose to do so, and the maturity dates for all the funds. So that is the date after which no DSCs will apply. And this will give you a baseline to work from. If you can't get a straight answer from your advisor, you may be able to call the mutual fund companies directly to get these details. At the same time, ask the advisor whether you can take any advantage of what are called 10% free units. Mutual funds with DSCs often allow you to sell 10% of your holding without penalty every year, so it might be possible to reduce the DSC by waiting a couple of months for that anniversary to come around. Once you know exactly how large the DSCs would be if you sold everything today, then you can decide whether to tear the Band-Aid off quickly or take a more gradual approach. If the DSCs are relatively small and the mutual funds have very high MERs, you might determine it's worth it just to pay the penalty and be done with it. Julian, for example, sent me a list of funds in his portfolio, and the average annual fee was about 2.5%. His account was about $150,000, so that works out to about $3,750 a year in fees. Now, he could reduce that annual fee by at least $3,000 by switching to ETFs. So if the DSCs on his funds added up to, say, $4,000, it might well be worth it for him to sell everything immediately, because the cost savings from switching to ETFs would allow him to recoup that cost in a little over a year. This all-at-once strategy also has the advantage of severing ties with your advisor, because let's face it, an advisor who sold you DSC funds in the first place does not have your best interest at heart, and once you tell him or her that you're planning on leaving, you're not likely to get the royal treatment going forward. Unfortunately, Julian, sometimes the DSCs are just too high for this to be feasible. If you find that the penalties are too expensive to absorb, here's another strategy to consider. You might be able to transfer the mutual funds in kind to a self-directed account at an online brokerage. And then once the funds arrive in your new account, you can place a switch order and move to a different fund in the same family that might have a lower fee and less risk. When you switch from one DSC fund to another DSC fund from the same provider, so let's say Dynamic Funds or McKenzie or whatever it happens to be, you won't trigger the penalty. Here's an example of what I mean. Let's say one of your holdings is a precious metals fund with an MER of 2.75% and a volatile history of double-digit gains or losses. If you're a budding couch potato, this is not a fund that you want to own. But if you're facing a huge penalty and can't sell it, you could instead switch to a bond fund offered by the same company. The bond fund would be less risky and would probably be half the cost of the precious metals fund. This can then form part of the fixed income allocation in your new portfolio. Depending on your target asset allocation, you might also switch part of your holdings to, say, a relatively conservative large-cap Canadian dividend fund, which probably carries a much lower fee than the precious metals fund and likely has holdings that are very similar to those in a Canadian equity index fund anyway. So this could form part of your Canadian equity allocation during the transition period. This strategy isn't ideal as you'll be paying much higher annual fees than you would with ETFs, but it's definitely the lesser of two evils. It reduces your risk and your costs while allowing you to get close to your long-term asset mix right away while you wait for the DSC funds to be reduced or eliminated. 
Now, a couple of warnings here. First, to pull this off, you need to place a switch order at your brokerage, which moves your money directly from one fund to the other with a single trade. This is not the same as placing an order to sell one fund and a second order to buy a new one. If you do that, you will trigger the DSC. So call your brokerage if you need instructions on how to place a switch order. You also need to make sure that you switch your holding to a new fund with the same DSC structure as the old one. If you move from a DSC fund to one that charges a front-end commission, for example, that will trigger the DSC too. Many mutual funds have several different versions and each one has a unique fund code, so you need to be careful that you're using the right one. Again, call your brokerage or even the mutual fund company if you need clarification. Finally, while a switch order will not trigger the deferred sales charge, it will result in a capital gain or loss. Now, if you're holding your mutual funds in an RSP or TFSA, this is irrelevant. But if you're using a taxable account, then you need to be aware of this. For tax purposes, a switch order has the same consequence as selling one fund and buying a new one. So Julian, you do have options if you're planning to get out of DSC mutual funds, though I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. We've helped a lot of investors make this transition when they come to us as new clients, and sometimes it can take a few years to completely break free from the shackles. But once you're finally in your new ETF portfolio, with fees about 90% lower than before, you'll be happy you made the effort. Thanks, Dan. Remember, if you've got an investing question for Dan, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. And if it has broad appeal, Dan may answer it on a future podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, which is our last one of the year. I want to give a big fist bump to Nick Jaworski, who edits and produces the show, and to Amanda DL and all my colleagues at PWL Capital in Toronto. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the new year.